0: Lord, help us again as we come around your word to understand it as being from your mouth. Everything that is written is for our uh, benefit, to train us in righteousness. It is from the very mouth of the living God. Help us to pay attention well to that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. To err is human, and to cover it up is also. (laughs) Confession, though, is ground clearing, getting the debris out of the way so that God can plant something in our hearts. Confession is ground clearing, getting the debris out of the way so that God can plant something in our hearts. That's why confession is good for the soul. There were three ministers out in a boat. As they were sitting and relaxing, one of the ministers said, You know, we speak of the importance of confession with our congregation, so we should practice that ourselves. Let's confess one of our struggles to each other. And they all agreed. So this minister goes first, and he says, I struggle with an obsession with golf. There are days I blow off going to the office and going on that visit in order to play a round of golf. And matter of fact, I can't wait to get back to shore to play some golf right now. The second minister shared, well, I'll be honest, I have have this obsession with cigars. Secretly, I take walks to the woods in order to smoke a cigar. And and matter of fact, I can't wait right now to get back to shore to light up a cigar. The third minister chimed in, wow, well, I guess I'll share my struggle. I struggle with gossip, and I can't wait to get back to shore. (laughs) Confession does make us vulnerable. Perhaps that's why we don't practice it. Yet if we are to cultivate a passionate heart, we must be about true confession. Well, what is true confession? Mark Buchanan had this to say about confession. He said, confession is presenting our real self to God. It's bringing before God not the person we hope to be, but the person we actually are. Sunday school teacher asked her class, tell me, what must we do before we can expect to be forgiven? Without hesitation, Billy replied, well, first got to sin. (laughs) Well, I think we have that part down pretty well. Or do we? Do we call it for what it is? Are we renaming it in order to be politically correct? A book was written many years ago by Carl Menninger entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? The main thrust of the book is how we fail to deal honestly with sin, that we like to ignore it, that we don't really want to admit it, that we'd rather call it something other than it is sin. Well, our passage in Nehemiah chapter 9 addresses this topic of what we are to do with sin, As we saw last week, the book of Nehemiah moved from the wall to the word. God was not through with his people. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with me either. In the previous chapter, we see the people coming expectantly, listen attentively, responding properly, and then leaving joyfully. That was last week. As we come to chapter 9, the very next chapter, it should be noted that this is only two days later from the final words and what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 8. The feast of tabernacles has ended, yet the people lingered to hear more of the word of God. Now, when is the last time we've witnessed that in our day? No, pastor, keep reading from the word of God. Do we really have to leave? When does that happen? I remind you that nothing changes our lives like the Word of God. Nothing. And what breaks out here in this chapter because of the Word of God is a revival. Does the revival last? Well, no. Someone asked evangelist Billy Sunday if revival lasts. He answered, no, but neither does a bath, but it's good to have one occasionally. (laughs) See, we need occasional revivals, personally, corporately, nationally. Revival could be defined as to recover life and vigor. Have you lost that? It's the idea of bringing back to life or bringing back to use. Aren't we in need today in the evangelical church in America, some renewal and freshness and power back in our lives? Yes. Verses 1 through 3 that Les read sets the scene in chapter 9 for what comes next in this chapter. They read God's word, folks, for a quarter of the day. Then, then in response to that, they spent another quarter of the day in confession and worship. God speaks to the people through His word and they respond. That is worship. God speaks, we respond. We then come to a magnificent prayer at the end of verse 5, going all the way to verse 37. It's a long prayer, perhaps one of the longest prayers in Scripture. There are times in this book that we have seen in which Nehemiah offered a quick prayer, I call an arrow prayer, up to the Lord. There are times for that. Lord, help. It's all we need. But if we're serious about cultivating a passionate heart, we can't live on just those kind of prayers. Sometimes it takes a while to pray. Now in this prayer, prayer of confession, prayer, prayer of asking God for mercy. God is spoken of over 50 times, often referred to as you. Another word that's used throughout this prayer is the word they, referring to the people of God. And it goes back and forth. You, God, they, people of God. You, God, they, people of God. All the way through it. I would encourage you to take six minutes to read from verse end of verse 5 through verse 38. Six minutes. If you're a slow reader, maybe it takes you ten minutes. I think you can handle that. Read it all the way through. I want to give you a sample uh, of what is is written here. Okay, a sample. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. You are the Lord your God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. Verse 8. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Girgashites. But notice this. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Verse 13. You, God, came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. Lotus, verse 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you... Get this, but you are a forgiving God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, bounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the deserts. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manner from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the deserts. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Notice verse 26. But, but they were disobedient. After all that God gave them, they were disobedient, rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. Verse 27. So you handed them over to the enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, what did they do? They cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, what did they do? They again did what was evil in your sight. And you abandoned them to the land of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion. You delivered them time after time. Notice verse 30, for many years you were patient with them. Oh, yes. Verse 31, but in your great mercy you do not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32, now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, and all that has happened to us. You have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Verse 36. But see, we're slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces because of our sins. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Folks, I have read that so many times this week and it brings tears to my eyes every single time. It's amazing. It's amazing. I want to make three observations about confession from this lengthy prayer. First of all, confession must be radically God-centered. Secondly, confession must be radically honest. And thirdly, confession needs to be, needs, leads to being radically changed. First of all, confession must be radically God-centered. Now, it seems so obvious that I shouldn't even have to say that. But much of our confession today, what we call confession, is not directed to God at all. We beat up on ourselves. Our confession has more to do, often, with finding relief for our conscience. Good, I took care of that, and I can go do what I want. Then it does an acknowledgement of its offense against the holy gods. Often our confession has more to do with saving face than it does a genuine brokenness over sin. Often our confession has to do with managing the consequences rather than the cry of the heart that grieves over our sin. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 calls that worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Do you catch the the rich theology in this prayer? Did you notice how God-centered it is? It speaks of one God who is holy, faithful, our creator, righteous, abounding in love, provider, judge, chastiser, merciful, compassionate, forgiving, gracious, slow to anger, sustainer, good, glorious, giver of life, patient, promise keeper, God who sees, God who hears, God who cares for our needs. That's what it says of God here. All confession must begin right here in the staggering truth of who God is. You see, the word confess simply means to agree with God. It's to say the same thing about sin that God says about it. A woman met with a pastor and said, I'm deeply troubled about a problem I know is hurting my testimony. I tend to exaggerate. I seem to enlarge a story until it's all distorted and people don't trust me. The pastor said, let's confess it to the Lord. And so she began to pray. She said, oh God, you know how I have a tendency to stretch the truth. The pastor stopped her and said, call it lying, ma'am. Call it lying, and you have a better chance of getting victory over it. The woman began to weep because she knew he was right. She'd been trying to make lying acceptable. I ask, what sin are you trying to make acceptable? Everybody does it. It's understood in the Christian community. We do this. Let's not minimize our sin by giving it a polite name. In other words, it isn't called sharing a concern. It is called gossip. It isn't called being out of sorts. It is called anger. God doesn't call it typical teenage behavior. He calls it rebellion. He doesn't call it an affair. He calls it adultery. He doesn't call it sexual orientation. He calls it sexual perversion. He doesn't call it a male thing. He calls it lust. He doesn't call it fudging on my taxes. He calls it deception. He doesn't call it good business. He calls it dishonesty. He doesn't call it shading the truth a bit. He calls it lying. It isn't, that's just the way I am. It is unchristlike. Let's call it what it is. What do you need to call it? Confession must be radically God-centered. I agree with you, God. This is what it is. Secondly, confession must be radically honest. It must be radically honest. Did you hear what was said about God's people in this prayer? They were called stiff-necked, rebellious, presumptuous, evil, disobedient, ungrateful, refused to listen, idolatrous, repeated offenders, arrogant, and stubborn. Because of their sin, they were in great distress. But oh, how often we downplay our sinful choice as no big deal. You might feel like the little boy who had learned a new word at school. So he tried it out at the dinner table. Not a good idea. It didn't go over so well with his parents, who were shocked with what came out of his mouth. So they sent him to his room to think about what he had just said. Well, after a few minutes, a violent thunderstorm appeared. The lightning flashed. The thunder crashed. The clouds just let loose with rain. Mom was concerned for her son up in her room. So she tiptoed to his room and quietly opened the door crack. Then she saw her son pressed up against the window and heard him say this, God, all this over one little word? (laughs) I doubt there's any connection there. But at times, we feel as though what we're going through as a result of our sin is unfair. It's excessive and it's unnecessary. Notice what it says in chapter 9, verse 33. It says, In all that has happened to us, you have been just you have acted faithfully while we did wrong. In other words, God, you are right, we did wrong, period. And whatever you you choose to give me as a result of this, I deserve. See, when we whine about the consequences, which we so often do, we're saying, I don't deserve that. So often we blame God for the mess that we bring on ourselves. It takes humility, to acknowledge that God has acted faithfully while we did wrong. And we don't feel the full extent of our sinful choices. It's only because of God's grace and mercy. And that's why we must come to him in all brokenness and humility and just say, God, I cry out for your mercy. It means we're radically honest about our sin. True confession, God-centered, authentic, honest, and biblical confession is about ownership. Can you say, Lord, you are right in what you say? Confession must be radically honest. Name the sin. Whatever became a sin, if we don't name it, we can't change it. Thirdly, confession leads to being radically changed. Confession leads to being radically changed. Look at verse 38. It clinches their confession. In verse 38, it says, In view of all this, in view of all, in view of all what? Well, in view of what God has done for them time and time again and giving them one duo over after another, in view of God's patience, in view of God never giving up on them, in view of God's never-ending help, in view of God's faithfulness, in view of all this, the people say, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. You see what's going on here? They had strayed from God's commands. There were areas that needed attention. They had become aware of the need for change and outlook and their way of life and how they did things. And they were now going to live by a new set of priorities. And a revival breaks out. So they make this binding agreement with God. They put it in writing. Not a bad idea when it comes to changing our ways. Write it down. Write it down. There's a greater likelihood of success when we write it down or when we speak of it to someone else. Do you have someone to share your goals with and your steps for change and your struggles with? Will you identify some area or areas in your life that need attention? Will you write down some new direction that God wants you to take? Maybe God is saying, you, we need a revival in your life. It all begins with confession. Confession. Max Lucado spoke of confession this way, he said, Confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks and pulling the stumps. He knows that seed grows better if the land is prepared, and confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. God, it's, I'm an open book. Check it out. Walk it, and he'll say, "Rock needs to be moved. Stump needs to be moved." And we all desire revival. We pray for revival. We don't all want a change. <sighs> Over there, do it. Don't mess with my life. You see, when God's word is opened up, and we respond to that in worship and confession, great things will happen. When we read about revivals in Scripture and throughout history, it always involved the people of God. It always involved the people of God being broken over their sin and repenting. That's where it began. And repentance, folks, is simply, it's it's just to do an about-face. It's to travel in one direction, turn around, and then go in the opposite direction. Don't repent of your repentance and come back. Whatever became of sin... Remember the quote from the beginning of the series? You know you're close to the heart of God, and what grieves your heart is the same thing that grieves the heart of God. I have to ask you, I've been asking myself this week, does sin grieve your heart? Does it grieve your heart? Where in your life do you need to call it for what it is? There was a report of a small middle school a few years back that faced a very unique problem. A number of girls would go into the bathroom, put on lipstick... And then they would press their lips to the bathroom mirrors, leaving dozens of little lip prints. It was making a mess of the mirrors. Well, finally, the principal decided something had to be done. So, he, so she called the girls to the bathroom and met them there with the custodian. The principal explained that lip prints caused a major problem for the custodian, who had to clean these mirrors every single day. And to point out how difficult it was to clean, the principal asked the custodian to demonstrate how he, would, how he cleans the mirrors on a daily basis. And so the custodian took out a long-handled brush. He dipped it into the toilet. And then he scrubbed the mirror. Needless to say, since then there have been no more lip prints on the mirrors. Um, if only if only we might view sin that way and realize the filth that we had been kissing. Only then will true confession be followed up by repentance. Only then will we stop preempting our sin as we so often do by saying something like, well, not to be a jerk or anything, now I'm going to be a jerk. Not to gossip, but did you hear? Now I'm going to gossip. That's preempting our sin. We say it all the time. Oh, not that it's all about me or anything, but I'm now going to make it all about me. Or not to blame someone else for it, but I'm now going to blame someone else for it. We preempted. So, so you should feel better about it. At least I preempted it. I told you I was going to do it. No big deal. No, it's filth. And Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We can bank on that, 1 John one nine. We can bank on it. But faithful and just are not just two words for a license to sin. But faithful and just ought to keep us out of sin. Does it pain you to sin against a faithful and just God? Does it pain you? Stories told of a time when the great John Chrysostom was arrested by the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor sought to get the Greek Christian to renounce his faith, but he couldn't do it. So the emperor discussed with his advisors as to what could be done to his prisoner Chrysostom. Shall I put him in a dungeon, the emperor asked. No, one of his advisors replied, for he would be glad to go to a dungeon. He longs for the quietness where he can delight in the mercies of his gods. Well, then he shall be executed, the ruler said. No, was the answer from one of his advisors, for he will also be glad to die for his God. He, he, he declared that in the event of death, he would be in the presence of his lords. He would love that. What shall we do then? The emperor asked. There's only one thing that will give Chrysostom pain, the advisor said. To cause Chrysostom to suffer, make him sin. He is afraid of nothing except sin. Is that our attitude towards sin? Or we become flippant and casual about it? Let's be tough on sin. Let's treat it seriously. Only then can we fully appreciate the forgiveness of our Lord. What's preventing you from coming clean, dealing honestly with your sin? Is it excuses? Corey Tamboum put it the blood of Jesus Christ never cleansed an excuse. Will you say no to excuse making? you say no to sidestepping, no to avoidance, no to playing the blame game? And can you imagine what God would do in our marriages, in our lives, in this church, in this area as his people come clean and broken before him in true confession and repentance? Can you imagine? Confess. Invite God to walk the acreage of your heart. I'm going to turn to a very familiar hymn, Search Me, O God. Began with Psalm 139, the dedication. We end with Psalm 139. It's hymn number 438. I'm going to invite you... Um, if you, don't want, need to sing the, if you don't want to sing this song this morning because you just want to do business with God and just pray right where you're at, you have permission to do that. Please do that. Don't sing. If you want to just invite God to show you and walk the acreage of your heart as you sing this, invite him in, do that. Whatever God leads. If you need to come up front and, and you want me to pray with you or some other brother or sister in Christ to pray with you, then Come up but but people we need to be serious about sin because only then as God does that work of removing rocks and stumps in our life does revival break out only then so let him do the work cleanse me hymn number 438 let's stand and sing